Welcome back to the Optimalist Podcast, where we examine just what it takes to ensure humans flourish in the age of AI. I'm Sarah, your host through this exploration of mindfulness, attention, focus, and motivation, all elements of human flourishing. So how do we cultivate them? This week, I'm joined by Andrea Trudeau. Andrea is a library information specialist with 25 years of teaching experience in the northern suburbs of Chicago. She's also a 2022 Fulbright Hayes Scholar and AASL's 2020 Francis Henn Award winner, who is currently a PhD candidate in instructional technology with a research focus on virtual reality and its impact on adolescents' empathic responses. Since becoming a librarian eight years ago, she has transformed the space into a vibrant, welcoming, student-centered learning commons that emphasizes community, creativity, collaboration, risk-taking, and fun. Andrea is a human-centered librarian who is passionate about social-emotional learning, literacy, innovative digital tools and resources, as well as the maker movement. Most importantly, Andrea believes firmly that a school library is the heart of the school, and she works diligently to help those in her school community feel welcome, valued, and connected. Listen as Andrea and I discuss how society is on the brink of a great awakening. Intrigued? Then join us for today's conversation. I just finished my 25th year teaching, and it's funny because, you know, I became a teacher in the late 90s when the greatest piece of advice you got was, like, don't smile till winter break. And any time, right, you heard it too. Yep. Any, any time as a, you know, as an eighth grade ELA teacher, I, I just really felt connected to the kids. I mean, that's why I do this work. I like the human element and I like getting to know students and working with them and watching them grow. And I learned early on, like how important it was to relate to my students. Um, it's one beauty of, I think, being an ELA teacher is students kind of reveal who they are through conversation and through writing. And, um, and I really felt such, it was such an honor to be part of their journey each year. It, kind of makes me sad because when I think back to my early days by focusing on relationships and uh, like a whole child approach, sometimes mm-hmm. people saw it as like extra or fluff. Like, why are you wasting your time on that? You just need to get to teaching grammar and work on reading comprehension. I'm like, well, but if I don't like focus on the human element, how do we get there? So fast forward to eight years ago and I switched roles and became um, the school librarian, which to me, is like harnessing my love for ELA, which I did for so long. But now I really get to harness that whole like human-centered approach. I always say that I work in a no-shush library because we like to break all the rules. But really at the heart of my work is creating a space of of humanity, like making people feel welcome, feel acknowledged, feel respected, feeling heard, um, not just through like the feeling they get when they walk into the space, but also through our programming, through our collection development. So to me, it's about creating this really safe space where everyone feels valued, respected, and welcome. And so I love that I get to do that now. And now, you know, this is something that's applauded more in education. And, you know, I would say relationships have to be put first. And so I'm so grateful for Focusable, now Engageable, because that's just another tool mm-hmm. in my toolkit to kind of help make this happen. I love all the things you're saying about connection and all all my favorite words, connection, relationships, humanity, and how that's 
something that is a focus of everything that draws you to what you do. And I think you finding yourself in a library situation totally reflects that. And I'm wondering, now, you've been talking to me for the last few days about, I don't know if you want to go into where you got this quote from, but (laughs) (laughs) you've been talking to me the last few days about kind of being inspired by some words you heard from a film that you saw earlier in the week. But the reason why I'm bringing it up right now is because I think talking about connection and humanity in a place where or in a at a time when we all are told that we're connected more than ever, but we don't feel that way, think that there's some sort of an awakening going on to what that means. And I think I'm hearing like patterns of kids asking to be disconnected or like eager to have their like this extra stuff being taken from them and like you said just before that there was a time when a lot of what you're doing was seen as extra and i think i think it's it's similar to the conversations i have with some people about sel and see when when we place it in another box and say this is a, this is something we add on when we decide we need it we're seeing like ripples of of that changing, but obviously it's not widespread enough or we wouldn't have to be having these conversations all the time. But um all all of this stuff is coming together in in what we are kind of working on to make sure that in this age, like now marching into the age of artificial intelligence, we all do not forget that our human connection is what makes everything meaningful and worthwhile and without it where would you know what what are we like who are we um and what are we working for or doing any of this for and so i know i'm going on and on now uh and just giving a speech about humanity but maybe you want to bring us um into this quote that you heard and maybe we can talk a little bit about how not just the work you're doing but how important it is for all of us to think of our place right now at this very specific time Absolutely. So it's it wasn't something I expected to discover, but on um, Wednesday, I had just sort of ushered all my guests home after a really long ALA conference. We had our annual this past week, and it was absolutely amazing. But it's, you know, those conferences can be exhausting for someone that's an extroverted introvert. <laughs> I just was feeling like really tapped out. And I told my family, I, I blocked it out of my calendar, like, these are my recoup days. And um, Wes Anderson, who's one of my favorite film directors, he just released this film, Asteroid City. Mm-hmm. And I live in a house where no one really likes Wes Anderson. So I decided I'm going to go solo and, and watch the movie. But what the problem is, is anytime I do that, I'm always like, crud, who am I going to like debrief with this about? And this one definitely had some stuff that I need to still kind of stew in. And the quote that I brought up to you that I'm still kind of sitting in and marinating in is, you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. And they repeat it um, many times towards the end of the film. There's even like a song that incorporates it. And I keep thinking about that notion of like not being able to wake up if you don't fall asleep. And initially my thought goes to kind of what you were just bringing up about how, you know, some students or individuals are kind of asking to like remove some of the distractions. You know, I think about how, I've got two teenage sons, how, you know, there's the pressure of social media in their teenage years, which, P.S., I am so glad I didn't have. Mm-hmm. Growing up. Me too. Yeah, there's all these 
devices around us all the time. We're so like, you know, anytime I, I caught myself doing this, I get bored and it's like, what do I do? I pick up my phone. Yeah. So just being so distracted by all the noise um, from social media, the media, devices, politics. I mean, there's just so much uh, distraction around us right now that at times I think it's really easy to kind of lose yourself. And going back to that idea of humanity, like I'm doing some research in empathy right now um, through VR. And it's when you look at something like empathy and understanding we can't really demonstrate understanding and empathy for others unless we are self-aware. Like that's a precursor. So I keep thinking about how there's all of this stuff around us distracting us. And if we don't take time to like fall asleep, as he says, we're not able to really hone in and tune in into the quiet part of ourselves, if that makes sense. Yeah. And the the other part that I thought of as I let it sink in when you, um, I think you maybe texted me moments after seeing this film. <laughs> sure, like I just got the, got just saw this movie. And because um, you were immediately thinking that it did apply to exactly what it is that we're talking about today. And so as I thought about it for the next day or so, I was even thinking like how how upset or down about ourselves, either individually or culturally, we get now about, you know, what what have we done? Like, how did we get to this place where we are all kind of walking around like zombies? Uh, like, Definitely. example being what you just said, in a second that I have nothing to do, I'm trying to fill every moment with something that literally is the equivalent. It's like the leisurely equivalent of busy work. It's not work, but your brain is working because and your eyes are working and you're constantly tired. And we're filling all the space with stuff that not only doesn't mean anything, but also is like regressively harmful. And so I, you know, we're, we, we do feel bad about the fact when we do like take a second to think about it, you know, it's easy to feel bad. Like, about where you are as an individual, like, why do I do this? Like, you could get really down really quick about it. But that quote saying, you can't actually come to that awakening or to any sort of awakening, um, which is usually a step forward, right? If you don't actually completely shut down first. And so it made me think that maybe what we're on the brink of is that light going on. Like, are we, you know, could we possibly be coming out of that, you know, or being given the opportunity right now to come out of this this phase where we've fallen asleep kind of to what it is that we need? And if we don't make the right choices, like at this moment and over the next few years, you know, will we come out of it? That's kind of how imminent I feel like it is. I don't know. Did I just take it too far, Andrea? No, I mean, I, I think you're right. I, there's a lot to navigate right now. But and I know I've, I've been intrigued by I think you had posted something on Twitter about how we're just, we're kind of drowning in all the dopamine. Like I understand why we're in this position, because, you know, you see the little alerts on your phone, and the likes and the follows, and it's all those little hits of dopamine. And Again, I'm fortunate that this technology didn't come into play for for me until I was a little bit older. But I, I look at my own children and and how they're handling navigating all the social media and the follows and the likes and all that all that jazz. And are they able to just like put it all away and kind of focus on the here and the now? 
And um, it's a conscious effort. And it's really hard sometimes because it's, I don't know, I feel like our phones, they're with us all the time and they're the, they, they become this little crutch. So shutting it off is hard. I think I was telling you this earlier too, something, um, and for everybody listening, when, if you're not listening to this, when the the week that this comes out, well, this will come out next week, which is the first week after we have just attended ISTE as a as the engageable team. And many people who listen to this will have also have just been there. But at any other point in time, it might be uh, important to know that that's kind of the we're kind of in the aftermath of that, where we have just renamed focusable, engageable. And I was telling not only Andrea, but a couple of other people earlier today, just running by this idea that we heard from so many people, um, like reflections about this as we talked to them about our ideas about attention and about being present and what it means to interact with the world around you, but also the life. We're calling it the life in front of you at this moment. And so, you know, when we when we think about the word engagement, we think about, I think often like excitement and entertainment, like especially even when you think of it in terms of how we might use it in education. But really, you know, if you break it down to engage with something is to participate in it. And so to participate in it, to interact with it, no matter what it is. And so on an individual level, how engaged are you? Like you listening to this right now, how engaged are you with the life in front of you right now. And like you could start by thinking about what are you doing while you're listening to this? Um, how many different things do you do at once in the evening? How often during a day are you only single tasking? And what do you get? How does your brain change when you stop doing that? And so I think part of this cycle of falling asleep waking up, falling asleep, waking up. Um, there's so many layers to it now that mm-hmm. are even coming coming to mind because it is, even does it even does indicate that we or suggest that we can't just consistently remain in that awake state either. That these cycles of actually falling, I guess, into a stupor are just part of being human. But what? But that's why I called it an opportunity in this moment, because you're always going to be given this opportunity to recognize that and like the awareness, like you were saying before, to become aware that something has to change. And are we going to recognize that that is the moment that we're in right now? Oh, that's so great. Yeah. And I didn't <laughs> mention this to you, Sarah. I, so I've always been like a doer, doer, doer. And I think when I was yeah. listening to you, I was thinking about how... um I just was, you know, pre-COVID was this person that constantly had like a lot scheduled and felt like I always had to be producing and doing and a mom and multitasking all the time to get things done. And then I don't know that you know that, but in November, December of 2019, I got in a really bad car accident and no, had a concussion. Yeah. Physical um, distress, you know, mentally, like I had anxiety. Um, so I started seeing a therapist. I was going to physical therapy to get through some really nasty concussion stuff. I was not able to, I basically was bedridden. Like I couldn't get out of bed. I could barely do my job. I, the things, the coping mechanisms for me to process my life were exercise and like rage cleaning and they were gone. Like I couldn't do anything. My life was stripped to the bone. And I have to say, looking back, that was such a gift because 
when you're forced to just sort of sit in that and sit in the yuck for a while, you start to figure out new strategies to process things and reflect and figure out where you're going with your life. And for me, that turned into, I need to meditate, I need to breathe, I need mindfulness. And um, I remember I was seeing my therapist and she challenged me to take one day a week and not schedule anything. And I was horrified by that thought. How could I do that? But now it's like something I relish, like I have to have, like I just got through this ALA conference and I blocked out time where it was just like, this time is for me. Um, and it's not selfish and it's a way to kind of process everything and figure out like, what did I just do? What is happening right now? And where am I going? So I'm almost like forcing that upon myself because I know how valuable it is. But previous me would never do that. I just kept going, 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 going. And it was really unhealthy. Yeah. And you hear so many people get um, having similar, you know, let's just go ahead and call it an awakening, right? Because that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Similar awakenings, mm -hmm. um, maybe completely different circumstances, but similar kinds of awakenings. And then they're like, how did it take me to this point in my life to actually do X, Y, and Z for the first time? And then once you get into that new phase and you look back, it really is a wonder that you were even surviving. And that's really yes. all you feel like you were doing, right? Is that survival mode. And coming out of that, it's like, how do you, you can't, you, it's almost like you can't imagine, um, you can't imagine going back to that mode and you'll do anything to keep yourself healthy. Yes. Yes. It was the hamster wheel. And I feel like now, my life is deeper and richer because I am more present in my life and allowing myself that space. So I think, yeah, that whole notion of falling asleep, I'm okay with falling asleep because I realize that when I wake up, I'm going to be seeing something with fresh eyes and creativity and excitement and enthusiasm. And in the long run, I think I'm actually more productive than I was when I was just spread so thin and frazzled. Of course. Yeah. And so I think about when I talk to people on this podcast, of course, because we're always going into these very specific conversations about people's own personal experiences. But in, in any aspect of doing this work day to day, when I talk to people about things like this, um, like you're explaining an individual, you know, an individual moment that has led to a change for you. And so I could easily see how you as an individual person now fit in as someone who probably changes the dynamic of any group that you're a part of. That can be your family structure. That can be going to work. Like you probably show up so differently as an employee. Um, you show up differently as every role that you could list. You you probably are, even if you don't notice it immediately, changing a little bit about the room you're in, the group you're in, and it could be influencing someone else there to do something similar. And everyone is going through something where they like that pattern of falling asleep and awakening at different moments. And so I think about the moment that we're in now and how important it is for, for so many of us at once to be brought into the present moment. Otherwise, I fear that our there's something that's really going to be lost here. But how can we translate that to what that might look like if we were working on presence and like engagement of the moment with students? Imagine like there's a classroom of 30 people being awakened individually to the moment in front of them. 
what does that do to the classroom environment? What does it do to a school? What does it do for teachers and classroom management? Kind of just want to extend this out there and see what what you might think about that. I wish I could show everyone. I'm imagining like my hand up high and then like bringing it way down to like what's <laughs> so important. I mean, I I just think about where my career started in 98 and where we are now and all the pressures that we have as educators and all the decisions that we have to make and all the needs of students. There's a lot swirling around every single day. So to go from this sort of highly elevated state to bringing it down several notches. Um, oh my gosh, I just, I almost can like feel the weight coming off my chest. Like I think it brings it back to the key essentials, which are are these human beings that we have in front of us as educators. But I think it's going to take modeling on the part of teachers to make this happen because um, like that's why when I first learned about Focusable, I wanted to try it myself because I wasn't going to be able to sort of share this with others and and show them how valuable it was until I had tried it and believed in it myself. But I think if we, like I was saying before, if we can, with my own life, if we can take people from this high level of anxiety and frantic state of being and just bring it down much lower to, I don't want to say like simpler, but we're kind of focusing it on humanity and people and what they need. I feel like students are going to be so much more open to uh, those around them. They're going to be so much more open to the learning that they're being presented. It's like the cognitive load is lessened. I can't help but think about cognitive load theory and just like how there's all these things that we're taxed by. And if we can just take some of those things off the table, it just opens us up and opens our students up to so much more possibility um, and such richer, deeper learning experiences. And sometimes what I think regarding what you're saying, it, it almost feels like, um, you know, it's it's such an amazing thought that like we almost can't put it into words because we can't imagine like how good it would be. Right. But you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. oh, my gosh, could this happen? Can we do it tomorrow? Well, yes. But it's one of those things and you'll probably get this and anyone else who has experienced really intentionally integrating mindfulness into their life. I'm always talking to people about if you think first about the transitions within a school day, right? What can we do with those natural moments that are breaks or transitions that already exist? We're not making new ones or carving out new space, but instead of just rushing in between them to something else or or um stuffing those little moments with small tasks that we think that we can get done really quickly. And that's on the student side and the teacher side. Like we're all like, I have six minutes. Okay, what can I, what can I do here? Mm -hmm. uh, who can I talk to? What phone call can I quickly make? Can I do my math homework in the next four minutes? Like we're we're all trying to figure out how we can just rush through all the stuff. But what if we just started by taking those transitions that exist in the day and using them to work on our present awareness? So instead of rushing from here to there in this 10 minute space of time, I take it two to three minutes of that time to literally sit and breathe and do nothing. And what that does as you break those tiny, those tiny moments up, and it's not a lot of time per day that, I mean, uh, yeah, in a given space of a day that you're doing that, but giving the brain that moment, that time to just stop moving 
it sometimes doesn't have to be as stressful as what can I take off my plate? But if you just stop yourself from moving and allow your brain to stop for a little bit, and then when it comes back to life, you see what I'm doing? I'm putting the brain to sleep and waking it again. I'm, I'm going with that. <laughs> yeah. When it I comes back to life, the brain will learn that that is what it wants. And then naturally to me, I think what you would, th- what you, the next step would be saying, well, now I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z again. So rather than just saying, I need to take all these other things off my plate, what happens if you reverse that and allow yourself to kind of go to sleep a little bit, pause and stop? And then when you come out of that, your brain craves that and you realize like, oh, yeah, I no longer am going to rush from A to, from A to B to C to D all day long. And instead, I'm, I'm going to realize that what the benefit from from stopping and pausing and then your brain doesn't want to go back. I don't know if I'm making any sense. I'm making some of this theory up on as I go along here, but it sounds like sounds like something that I hear a lot of teachers agree with when I talk to them about those transitional moments and what could you do to help a student become more present, which really is becoming more attentive, right? Yes, absolutely. And and how does that have a ripple effect into everything else? How does that have a ripple effect into how they show up in a group like next period? You're just making me think it's like you're sort of honoring that transition. And as a middle school teacher, I think that's one of the biggest stressors I see for my incoming sixth graders. They're used to being in a classroom all day and the transition is switching subjects. But now they have to get up with their things, remember all their things, get to that next classroom with that different teacher who has a different personality for a different subject area. So it's no wonder that our sixth graders, when they start, look like a deer in headlights. They're so anxious about all this shifting and changing. And I I just can't help but think if we just even the very beginning of the year started each class with some some brass or a recharge, I think it would be profound. And even ending the class with that as well. So it's like you're sort of honoring the class of that day and let's get ready for what's coming next. And now we have our next transition. I think that would have profound effects. I agree with you. And I'm obsessed right now with this idea of probably influenced by the fact that we're just experiencing the transition into summer and people are, you know, you're always thinking about like ending things or stopping, stopping or not continuing things that maybe didn't work so well. And what can I do to refresh for next year? And I'm just obsessed right now with this idea of what if, what if schools, what if every school were starting with like an attention assembly instead of academics first, but like all parents are like in an assembly about attention or also what you just um, exactly what you just described. If that's how you were starting the beginning of the year with this is how we start and end all things. And then that continues like on a micro level, like even just hearing you talk about it, like we all know the way we start things really sets the tone. And so what is the tone that we need to really help change our brains and start allowing our brains to really do the work that we know they're capable of because right now we're not giving them a chance to do that. Yeah, there's just always so much. I'm thinking as you're speaking about how I always have my little introduction to all the the different grade levels at the beginning of the year and I do like an overview of the library. And I'm going to start with just doing a recharge or some breathing this year because normally I dive right in and it's like, I need to give everybody some space as we start at the new school year together. And I want them to see that this is something that we really value in a library. 
because it is a space where kids are feeling overwhelmed. And they do this thing in my school where they're like, can I take a lap? Because there's kind of this natural lap in the heart of our school. So kids will go and walk. But now they're starting to realize, oh, I can come into the library and Mrs. Trudeau has, you know, some strategies to use or she has like stick together poster or some stacking rocks. Like I have all these little tips and tricks that students know I have available for them and they'll come in and use that. So I want them to know first thing that this is a a space where they can come if they just need to take breath. Because I don't know that every teacher is going to do what we're talking about here, unfortunately. Right. And until it became something that was a standard, which uh, like, we don't know how long that's going to take, but that's my dream. I know you know that that's my dream. I want attentional standards to be to be the thing. I want everyone to be just as obsessed with this um, as I am. And so I'm glad you're bringing up your particular role in the library now, because I wanted to just take what we're talking about in terms of what we need in society and individually and how that might look in schools. And maybe you can talk a little bit about how you see libraries maybe as this place of awakening you kind of just start to touch on it a little bit there but what what is the i mean you could even tell us what you see as the traditional role of this of the school library and how that's kind of transitioning into maybe something really different in this new age that's that's even more important in the lives of students and you know how that really connects to creating a space of humanity Yes. I mean, I think traditionally, when I first started at my school, the library was, it was pretty much focused on the reading and the research. So you had to do a research project or you needed a book, you went to the library. And we had a lovely librarian, but it was sort of that classic approach was just kind of focused in on literacy. And I think as time has gone on, we've realized that, you know, libraries have to evolve with the evolving needs of people. And um, a huge part of that is addressing kind of the whole child. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, the library is, to me, it's a a welcoming space, a human-centered space, a space where um, people can come in really at any time. And, and by people, it's, it's going to be, at my school, it's students and staff members. So it's not uncommon that students and or staff members come in when they're they want to come and celebrate something with me, or they just need to take a breath, or they're stressed out and they need to vent. So it's just another place where they can come and they feel heard and they feel valued and they crave connection. Um, so I go home absolutely exhausted by the end of the day. But the cool thing is, is that I get to work with all these different individuals and support them in any way that I can. So I think libraries today are we're unique in the fact that we're kind of this public space and you have, I should say, many te- librarians call themselves teacher librarians because we are teachers as well. So we still can help with the academic angle, but we are fiercely advocating for humanity, global consciousness, self-awareness. Like if you look at our collections, I mean, libraries are based on this this notion of Everyone should be represented value. That's what Rudine Sims Bishop said in her uh, idea of mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. So I think we're just really founded on this notion of humanity and everyone feeling represented. And I think we're starting to realize that we can harness much more than books and databases in order to do that. And so being able to harness things like makerspace where people can explore and tinker and take risks and have fun, 
um, having, you know, these SEL tools and these tools to support attention, I think are going to be huge as well. So I think librarians are evolving in the sense that they are figuring out new ways in order to reach people and um, ultimately help the individuals that we work with grow in their own in their own way. And I don't think you can overstate the connectivity part because they're not just coming in. I'm sure you do have plenty of students who come in solo as individuals who need also a quiet space, who, you know, are, are maybe looking for private, like, or, or privacy in digesting things or just, just a place of being welcome is what I always remember from my school libraries. But at the same time, you're always providing spaces for collaboration and connection and always being there to help them facilitate that. And I like both of those things being available at one place because I think that we don't imagine if the library didn't exist. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> no, it like just made me, yeah, took my breath away a little. Yeah. It's, that would be like, oh, not even like the idea of a library didn't yeah. exist, but if it was just like we thought of it as there's this room somewhere in the building where we can go to get stuff that we need. And maybe there's someone there that helps you physically you know, check out the thing or find the thing, but there isn't actually that place. Um, Yeah, I felt it too when I said it, actually, because that really does take away. That's why I brought it up, because all of that idea of this is a hub of where we exist as individuals, where we come for any any sense of, of needing a space of our own or needing to come together with each other and figure out figure out what we need best at this moment and to learn what what is the newest what is the newest way that we can um achieve and grow together as well and i think i think you guys are really i talk about it all the time like i don't think if you asked anybody around the uh engageable team over here or the optimalist community the two groups i talk to uh, talk about the most are school librarians and school counselors. I'm like, I just want to work with them all the time. <laughs> I think they are the life of the school. Seriously. And thank you for saying that because I think you're, you know, there are spaces sadly around the United States where the librarian role has been cut. So there might still be a physical library space, but it might be, you know, like an administrative assistant is providing right. the books, but it's like a dead zone because there's no one in there to breathe life into the space and create those connections. So I think um, it's critical that there's a dedicated space that is the hub of the school, the heart of the school, but that there are, you know, certified school librarians in there that are trained to support the needs of their school com- community. And I'll just end this with saying, I remember when I was in high school, let's see, I, I, st- I graduated from high school in 2000. So I'm the famed class of 2000. <laughs> But so I started high school in 1996, which was like those years there were such a huge leap in internet usage and all of that. That was like a huge stretch of time where like, you know, you didn't even have some people didn't even have email addresses. It was like maybe your house didn't even have a computer. So it was like, but then you'd go to school and, you know, you'd be expected to know how to use a computer. So it was like a weird transitional time and how people use technology because it wasn't something that everybody really had personally. Um, and the understanding of what the internet was and why we would need it wasn't 
really very widespread either. And so I, I remember when I started high school, it was somewhere in my first year. It was like somewhere in between my first and second year. They kind of, I guess, renamed our high school library or they gave it this banner, which was like a nickname. And it still hangs in that high school library today. Um, but they called it all of a sudden the Electronic Doorway Library. Oh. And I always remembered that even as a kid. I was like, you know, 14 or 15 thinking like, is that what the name of our library? And then realizing over time like, oh, it's because this is the only place that a lot of us have to come and connect to the internet because we didn't even have it at home. And it was like this idea that if you came here, someone would help you connect beyond your peers and beyond the town that you lived in, beyond this building, to the world outside. And I grew up thinking like that's what the school library was. And I it could be, you know, I was also an English major and everything. So it could just be, there's a lot of factors that make me attached to libraries. But that is the perception I had of a, specifically a school library. Um, because of that high school experience of it being like this transition between, you know, a world outside of the school, which maybe wasn't connected to the outside world yet, but I would come to school and feel like I had everything available to me in that room. And to the, so that kind of has colored my idea of how important it is to have that, that heart and that center. Um, especially in middle school, I think that that's, that's a really exciting time to be, to be the one that kind of gets to gather people in that way. Oh, I absolutely love it. And I know sometimes middle schoolers get a, get a bad rap, but they they still mm -hmm. really want like mama duck around, but then they also want to be fiercely independent. So it's so fun to watch them evolve over those three years. But, you know, I think we can, as librarians, be there to support them along the way because that support is going to be different based on kind of where they're at in their development. And it's pretty exciting by the time, you know, they come in as these almost elementary students in sixth grade and then you know, turn into uh, these these eighth graders who are ready to head off to high school. So it's a cool, it's a cool, it's a really cool transitional period. And that's why I've spent 25 years in this building. Yeah, I love it. Well, Andrea, I am so glad that you were able to join us today for this conversation. And I, I know it hit me like a week ago, a week ago, I was like, oh my gosh, before we get to crazy into different summer plans that pull everybody into a million different directions. I have to talk to Andrea for the podcast because it was crazy that I hadn't talked to you yet, but I know we've both been equally, um, you know, busy with lots of different projects as far as the end of the school year was coming. So I'm so glad we got this in before things got too busy. But before we end, I wanted to ask you just a couple of more fun questions. I guess they're a little bit about Give us a little insight into you and maybe who you are. Maybe they even connect naturally to some of the things that you think about in your working life. And that's how we like to end every episode of The Optimalist. So uh, if it's okay with you, I'm going to ask you. Maybe, and you don't have to answer all of these. You can pick one. You can do a couple of them, um, whatever you want. But is there anything you are reading right now or watching right now? Uh, I know we talked about a quote from something you just watched. Uh, that was what this episode was based on. But anything you're reading, watching, or listening to that you would love to kind of throw out there as being inspiring or something that's really fun that you would recommend to other people? Well, I'm I'm 
currently listening, one of my favorite podcasts is by Amy Herman. It's School Librarians United. And um, I'm really excited because she just released her ALA episode where she and I watched her in action. She basically spoke with, I think, like 20 different librarians and asked them kind of their takeaways from ALA conference. So as I'm sitting here debriefing from my experience, I'm really excited to listen to that particular episode and just hear what some other people thought. Because I, I met many of the people that she interviewed and some are earlier in the careers, some are more veterans. So I always appreciate kind of hearing people's reflections on such a big conference. I love that title, School Librarians yeah, United. she's amazing. So and she's international. So <laughs> she's, she's a great advocate for us. Um, other than that, I'm reading. I'm, I'm working on my third publication for my dissertation. So most of yeah. my reading right now is more nonfiction, research-based, uh, doing a lot of exploration of like different facets of empathy versus sympathy um, and looking at uh, storytelling in uh, cinematic VR. So that's where most of my reading is right now. Not as exciting probably to your readers, but that is my reality. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, but it gives us insight into you um, and it all wraps into what we're talking about today. I think a little bit more of an understanding of who you are. Well, thanks. Yeah, thank you. And our very last question, which brings everything back to the purpose of this podcast, the purpose of the Optimalist community, which is to support the work that we are doing with Engageable, which brings us all back to attention. So I like to end by asking people if they have an attention method or a method of, you could say, I previously was asking people a, fo a focus method, but I'm starting to try to use attention um, a little bit more, a method of attention that you use that helps you maybe, we could say, engage with the life in front of you um, that you think works and you would say, try it to people or try it with students. Is there something that comes to mind for you? Yes. Immediately when you say that, I want something that's like easy and accessible. It doesn't require any sort of app or tool or anything. And that to me is belly breathing. When I feel myself getting overwhelmed or struggling to focus, I literally just stop where I am, put my hand on my stomach, and take three deep, amazing belly breaths. And um, it's been interesting because I've used that strategy with students where students will come in and I can tell they're sort of emotionally elevated and I'm like, okay, let's stop and we'll do it together. And it is amazing how they could just sort of come down and come to a space where we can then process what they're going through. And then in my own life, it's like I, I can come down and kind of focus my attention where it needs to be. So belly breathing to me, hands down, is just quick, convenient, and super effective. Seems like it's a good way to almost like a micro moment of self-regulation. Yeah. Seems like what you're describing, which yes. is really cool. Great. And, uh, very last. I know I said that was last. This isn't really a this isn't really a question that you have to think of an answer to. But if any of our listeners wanted to connect with you or find you, where would you direct them on social media or any links that you'd like them to follow? Um, where can people connect with you? So I think one of the best places to connect with me is on Twitter where you and I connected. So I'm at Andrea underscore Trudeau. Um, otherwise, I do have a website that shares a lot of the work that I've been doing and it's no shush librarian.com. 
I'll make sure you get that link. Yeah. And so everything that we've referenced in today's episode, including all of Andrea's like socials and links um, to connect with her, as always, will be in the show notes. So um, no worrying about jotting anything down uh, really quickly. But thanks so much again for making the space to jump on this recording with me today. And um, I'm glad I'm sure we'll be talking again tomorrow or the next day or the next day. <laughs> Thank you, because Sarah. The, the ideas never stop. I know. I think of something. I'm like, oh, it, you shouldn't have given me your cell phone number, Sarah. I'm just going to keep texting <laughs> you stuff. It's You open Pandora's box. <laughs> What's funny is that even, even with like an additional method of communication, it doesn't stop from using the other older methods as well. Oh, I know. You got to, right? you know. We might. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm you... like, oh, I just DM'd you. Oh, <laughs> just... okay. We'll use one method to say we've used the other. <laughs> it's so funny. You see? And this is where our attention is split, everybody. Yep. We're guilty, too. <laughs> Thanks to Andrea for taking on a slightly less direct topic and diving into what it means for us as individuals and as a connected community. No podcast episode is totally easy, but a willingness to speak unconventionally and see where it goes is especially appreciated. You can let us know what you thought by leaving a comment on Substack, a review in Apple Podcasts, and you can reach me on Twitter at scandela9. You can listen and subscribe to The Optimalist Podcast wherever you love listening to great podcasts. New episodes are released every Wednesday. Links to all of these resources are available in the show notes. The Optimalist Podcast is brought to you by Engageable, the only app that gives you the pulse you need for better attention. And it's free. Create an account today at getengageable.com or by downloading Engageable on any iOS or Android device. You can also follow us at Get Engageable on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening to The Optimalist. I'll be back next week with a new conversation. Stay engaged.